technology. <laughs> All right, this morning we come to Psalm 22. Again, it might seem a little bit of an odd choice for a sermon for Easter Sunday, celebrating Christ's resurrection, a psalm that seems to focus and does focus so much on Christ's suffering on the cross. Uh, but that's not all the psalm is about. It's also a psalm of victory, and I hope that we will see that here this morning. Let me read the psalm for us. It's a bit lengthy, uh, but it is worth reading the whole thing. As always, this is God's very word. Psalm 22. To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, in you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. You are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you as I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship, belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. 
All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Again, so ends the reading of God's holy word. As we come before it this morning, let me once again pray for us. O Lord our God, we ask now your blessing as we come before your word. And again, we ask that you would speak to us through it. And that you would fulfill your own promise about it. That when it goes out, it does not return to you empty. Instead, it accomplishes what you purpose for it. And is successful in the things for which you send it. For us, we pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us this morning to open our eyes and ears to see and hear all that you would have us learn this morning. We ask that you would make your word a lamp to our feet and a light to our path so that we might walk according to what it teaches us. O Father in heaven, we ask this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Well, as I said in the, in the introduction briefly, we've been going through the Psalms, and not every Psalm, but kind of the highlights of the Psalms, calling this series Divine Soul Music, because the Psalms express the, the deep desires and the pains and the sorrows, but also the joys and the praises, and also uh, embody the prayers of our hearts and of our souls. The Psalms are very human, very, very existential, if I can put it that way. Whether written by David or Solomon or Moses, the sons of Korah, or whomever. But the Psalms are also inspired scripture from God. And so we see in in the Psalms that if God wrote these things, he knows us very, very, very well. And he's given us these incredibly wonderful expressions of our deepest thoughts and our deepest feelings. The Psalms are, are brutally honest. Sometimes in, a, in surprising ways, the things that the Psalms talk about and, and declare and, and, and point out to us. Some ways that we might feel uncomfortable in our own prayers talking to God. I, I don't dare say that. I don't want to offend God. But here God shows us that we can speak in very direct ways to him and not hide the thoughts and and feelings of our hearts. We should never lose our awe and respect for God. All the laments, all the the pourings out of people's heart, except for one psalm, uh, by my count, all of them end ultimately with praise to God. But they're so brutally honest. And that's the way it should be. Because, after all, God already knows what you're thinking. (laughs) He already knows what you're feeling. So you might as well be honest with him. And the Psalms teach us how to do that, I think, in a very powerful way. And then what we have here this morning in Psalm 22 is is an incredible psalm that's, to me, a, a powerful intersection of human expression, but also divine expression the thoughts and feelings of both uh, us as people, but God, particularly in the person of Jesus Christ. It's written by David. It literally says it's for the director, and we typically think of that as some sort of a choir director. 
So this is a psalm that's meant for public worship. It's not a private thing. It's meant to be shared by God's people. I put an outline in here because, one, it's a longer psalm, and two, I, I just wanted you to have something that you could follow, follow along with. There's this pattern as the psalm cries out to God because of enemies, because of those around the psalmist. But you'll see in this pattern of, of crying out, this rejection expressed in, by the psalmist, that following that are, are cries of faith, repeated three times. So David never loses heart completely, never despairs utterly. There's always that accompanying cry of faith. And the psalm ends with, kind of a, within the psalm, another song or psalm of victory from verses 22 to 31, a victory of, of the Lord even to the ends of the earth, as it says in verse 27. So David wrote the psalm. David is the one crying out, and, and we should see that and recognize that. But we can also say that David, as the king, speaks for the people of Israel, the nation. And I think he does that here in this psalm. This isn't just about David. This is about the, the nation of Israel as well. But in the final analysis, this is a psalm about Christ, written a thousand years before he lived. And that's what I want to focus on this morning, is that perspective. It's a psalm that Jesus remembered as he was hanging on the cross. Those of you who were here Friday, we talked about the seven last words, the fourth of those being, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The very first verse of this psalm. There's that direct quote. I think there are a couple other references to this psalm and, and a couple of the other words that Jesus speaks, but there's also other prophecies that are fulfilled. You might have noticed as I was reading through that they cast garments for his clothing or um, they pierced his hands and feet, a description of crucifixion. So this is a, this is a Christ-oriented messianic psalm, if you want to use that term. So again, I want to look at the psalm from the perspective of Christ on the cross, but then also remember that this is a psalm for us and, and what we can get from it as well. So Christ on the cross. The outline itself is, kind of comes in two parts. The first 21 verses, this threefold uh, declaration of, of this rejection that, that comes, but also the cry of faith that's Repeated three times. Not an accident when we see things repeated three times in God's word. But then this song of victory from verses 22 to 31. We'll just go through this and, and look at each in turn. The first cry of faith in verses 1 and 2. Again, Jesus quotes the first phrase there as he's hanging on the cross in Matthew 27 verse 46. The simplest way to, to react to this is this is a prophecy fulfilled as Jesus was hanging on the cross. And I think this ties to the moment when, as Paul puts it, our sins are placed upon him, nailed to the cross with Christ. At this moment, the Father, who is holy and righteous, and who cannot bear the presence or sight of sin, he must 
turn his face away. He must look away from his own son. And so there's this sense of abandonment of God's face being turned away as he cannot stand to look upon the sin that has engulfed his very own son. That's powerful enough an image right there. But what I also want to think about is that I think Jesus had more in mind than just this first phrase. It's a common practice, or it was a common practice in ancient times. We see a little bit of it copied uh, today. But when he wanted to refer to a a poem or a song or a a treatise or a letter, um, the title you gave it would be the opening words of that work, whatever it might be. We even see that a little bit in the practice of naming the books of the Bible. Genesis begins in the beginning, and Genesis means beginnings, and many of the books of the Bible are named in that fashion. So I think it's entirely possible, and as we look at this more closely, going through this psalm, not just possible, but probable, that when Jesus quoted this first verse, he was referring to the whole psalm as an expression of what he was going through and doing on the cross. But what do we make of this statement by Jesus, by the Son? Why have you forsaken me? Did the Son of God really have that level of anguish, of despair? Did the Father really abandon him? That's something that feels a little bit uncomfortable for us, to say that the Father and the Son could be that far apart in any kind of sense. And so people will kind of brush this off. I call it brushing it off because I don't think it's true. Brush the statement off as, as just a metaphor that expresses the pain and depth of Christ's suffering. I think that's in part trying to protect the, the unity of, of the Trinity. How could the Father abandon the Son if they're one God? But I think that point of view tries too hard and it's not necessary because abandonment doesn't necessarily mean physical separation, as if God could be physically separated. He's a non-corporeal spirit being. The abandonment is real, but the abandonment is, is, a, is a relationship kind of, of abandonment. The anguish is real. There's a purpose there and a meaning in that abandonment to show us the consequences of sin, even on, as the Son bears it for his people on the cross. The Father can't even abide sin when it's on his own Son. That's a powerful message to us about the sinfulness of our own sin and the the presumption that we often have in thinking we can come to God as we are without uh, repentance and faith. And so sin can never be taken lightly because God hates it and can't, as I said, even abide it in his own Son. But the anguish is not... And, the, and this, the abandonment is not, it's not utter. It's not complete. And we see this in verse 1 and 2 because three times, three again, repetition, three times Jesus or David for Jesus calls God my God. And that's not a trivial statement. Even in the midst of the suffering The Son looks to the Father and knows Him as my God. That's a personal statement. 
You've turned your face away. You've looked away from me. You can't recognize me or even look at my, my filthiness and my sin. But the relationship at its heart is still intact. He is still my God. I am still his son. And then in verses 3 to 5, we have the first cry of faith. A remembrance that God is the God of Israel. He's a holy God, and he's a God who can be trusted. Our fathers trusted in him, and they were delivered. They were rescued, and God did not let them be put to shame. A little lesson here as we face our own trials and difficulties in life is to remember that the God that we serve is a God who does love and protect and save his people and has done so in the past. He rescues, he delivers. We can look back as far as Adam and Eve realizing the nature of their own sin and their nakedness, which is a metaphor for that sin, and God in his love killing the animals and clothing them with their skins. His deliverance of Noah and his family from the flood the way he protected Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the way he delivered Israel out of the slavery and bondage that they experienced in Egypt, the way he continually rescued Israel from their enemies, ultimately giving them a king after his very own heart. Just remembering the facts, the history of how God deals with his people ought to be a source of encouragement to us and allow us to begin to build back up our faith, even in the most devastating of circumstances. Well, six to eight, we see rejection again. The first was related to God, but now we see rejection by by people around the psalmist, around Christ himself. Scorned, despised, mocked. They make mouths at him. That's an idiom for, you know, taunting and and wagging their heads, you know, that type of thing. Tut, tut, tut. So what we're recalling here as we look from the perspective of Christ on the cross is how he was so viciously mocked by those around him. The soldiers who gave him sour wine to drink, who put a crown of thorns on his head, who smacked him across the face and said, prophesy, who hit you? who pulled out his beard. The inscription that they nailed to the top of the cross, a mocking, ironically mocking, description of the crime for which he was being crucified. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, meant in mocking derision of who he is. So these verses recall all that anger, all that rejection of Christ as he went to and then hung upon the cross. Then the second cry of faith in verses 9 to 11 also looks back, but this time not just in general to the works of God, but it's a very personal look back on the part of the psalmist. Now it's personal. You saved me. You've done this for me. From my mother's breast, you were my God. When trouble is near and there was none to help, you were not far from me. Again, a lesson for us to learn. When in despair, when in trouble, when in difficulty or trials, to remember what God has done for you, 
And He has done things for you. At the very least, saved you and rescued you from your own sin. But look back at the way that He's taken care of you. The trials that you've gone through, the ways that He has helped you, physically, financially, personally. And how He's made you His adopted child, how He's loved you with a great love and been rich in mercy toward you in Christ your Savior. We can all look back at things. I can look around the room and know that there are stories that each one of us can tell about what God has done for us personally. That's powerful. We don't just have a general understanding of God's goodness from biblical history. We have that experience ourselves. And that's true for anyone who has walked with Christ for any length of time. Well, then we get back to the, uh, a longer section of rejection, in verses 12 to 18. This, this one takes us right to the cross. Jesus hanging there, being crucified. His enemies are surrounding him. Remember, in the story, his friends are kind of far off, in the distance, looking on, uh, scattered, watching from far away. His enemies surround him. It's described in verses 12 and 13 and 16. And his suffering is described in 14, 15, 17, and 18 as an incredible, deep, and great suffering. Some of the phrases that are used, that he's poured out like water. There's another reference to that word on the cross, I thirst. Why? Because he's been poured out, emptied, dry. Christ has poured himself out for us. 14 and 15 have images that that we know from medical studies of crucifixion are very descriptive of that experience. Bones out of joint, heart like wax, melted, strength dried up, tongue sticks to my jaws, can count all my bones. Uh, The experience of, of crucifixion would lend itself very well to these kinds of descriptions. We have the prophetic fulfillment of verse 16. They pierced my hands and feet. And verse 18. They divided my garments among them for my clothing cast lots. The soldiers, unwilling to rip up the clothes, decide instead to cast lots to see who would get them. Luke 23. So this is very evident about Christ on the cross. And then there's the third cry in verses 19 to 21, the cry of faith that in this case is a prayer for deliverance from the current agony and looks to God as my help, my aid, my deliverer, savior, my rescuer. Do not be far off. My help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul, my precious life. Save me. You have rescued me. And so there's a prayer to rescue me again. I think this is a very instructive for us, these three <clears throat> cycles of rejection and, and the cry of faith. When we find ourselves in a similar situation, our first instinct is to cry for rescue. <laughs> get me out and get me out now. But there's instruction here for us that it is valuable to spend time first remembering who God is, remembering what he's done for his people, but then also remembering what he's done for me And then on that basis, with confidence and with a sure hope, not wishful thinking, a sure hope, 
asking God for deliverance. The God who rescued to come and rescue again. So, the cycles of rejection, followed by cries for help, cries of faith, which leads in the psalm, because of that confident expectation of deliverance, leads naturally to a song of victory. And that's the, the biggest section, single section of the psalm, 22 to 31. A song of victory sung even before the victory is realized, and experienced. It's a song of hope, and it's a song of confidence. It's a song of faith, and it's a song of love. It is a song that's crying out from the heart in praise and in confidence. And if we think of Jesus on the cross as remembering this whole psalm, not just parts of it, but the whole thing, this song is in his mind as he's dying, about to give up his life. It's a song that speaks to those around the psalmist, around Christ. It starts very close, addressing those nearby, and then it expands in wider circles. It begins very close, as I said, in verses 22 to 24. His brothers, his own disciples, the people of Israel, the inner circle in verses 22 to 24 is, is, if you will, the home congregation people of Israel, Jesus' brothers, descendants and offspring of Jacob. Israel referred to here in the third person, he who cries out to God who answers him. God's going to hear Israel, and Israel is going to glorify and praise the Lord God, the covenant Lord. So the psalmist, David, or Jesus Christ, is himself a witness to his brothers, to the congregation. And who did Jesus come to? The Jews. He came to his own people. Many rejected, but many believed as well. And we look, some of us, to Romans 11 as a promise of the future salvation of all of Israel. But here is the, the people of God, my brothers, the congregation, Praise going forth because God has not despised them in their affliction. God has not hidden his face from them. He's heard when they cried to him. So there's this witness, there's this victory that begins at home. And then it expands in verses 25 to 26. We see the phrase, the great congregation. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat, be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. Is there a difference between the congregation and the great congregation? I think there is. I think it's significant because now the congregation includes, what did Jesus tell us when we read this a couple weeks ago in John 10? I have sheep that are not part of this sheepfold. I have to go and get them too and bring them. The congregation now becomes a great congregation. as those outside are brought in to the sheepfold to eat, to be satisfied, to praise their covenant Lord God. And from there, the victory extends even to the whole world. Verses 27 to 31. 
All the ends of the earth will remember. All the ends of the earth will turn to the Lord. Families of all the nations shall worship before you. Kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. The victory extends to the whole earth. doesn't mean everybody is saved, but it does acknowledge that God, the Lord, Christ himself, is king over every tongue, tribe, and nation. None are accepted. God rules over the whole world and over all the nations. Verse 29 anticipates what we read from Paul in Philippians 2. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship and shall bow down to him. Everyone who could not keep himself alive will bow down before the Lord God. Paul makes that promise, that statement in Philippians 2, that Christ, who humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, will one day receive the worship of every knee and every tongue that will proclaim him Lord to the glory of the Father. This psalm looks to that day. And then verses 30 and 31 look even beyond (laughs) the present circumstances of the world. If you can put this 2,000 years ago, it looks to the future, to posterity, to those who will come, and it says, even to a people not yet born. The victory extends not just through the earth, but through time as well, through the generations. The progress of the gospel as it goes out into all the world throughout all history. It's a victory. What kind of victory is it? It's not a political victory. It's not a military victory. It's not an economic victory. It's not because we're smarter or stronger than anybody else. The victory comes in the proclamation of the righteousness of God. They shall come, it says in verse 31, and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. That's the victory. That's the victory we should be hoping for and searching for. John says it in his first letter, 1 John 5, 4. What is the victory that overcomes the world? Our faith. Not anything else. We talked about idols earlier in the service. What kind of idols do we have? Politicians, business people, leaders of the world. Why do Christians continue to look to these things for help? Our victory is our faith. And that victory is sure because of the last phrase in this psalm. He has done it. The Lord has done it. God has done it. It's a phrase in our English Bibles. In Hebrew, it's one word. It's a word that means he has done it, but it could be translated differently. The he could be an it, and the done could be finished or completed. So it could be translated, not he has done it, could be translated, it is finished. A word on the cross. Was Jesus thinking of this psalm on the cross? I think so. From my God, my God, why have you forsaken me to it's finished. He has done it is the right context for this psalm. But seeing it from the point of view of the cross, I think we can expand our understanding a little bit. He quotes this psalm in verse 1, arguably makes a reference to verse 14 in being poured out, and I think recalls the end of the psalm as well. It is finished. He has done it. It's over. It's complete. It's accomplished. 
It's consummated. So it's an amazing thing for me, and this is the psalm has become one of my favorites over the last few years, to think that on the cross, as he hung there, Jesus was remembering this psalm as he died in our place for our salvation. Well, all right, it's Easter Sunday. This is a psalm about crucifixion, about Christ on the cross, but is it a psalm for us too? Well, yes. Because if this psalm has in its mind, and it does, a people yet unborn, posterity, those who have yet to come into the great congregation, this psalm is about you, and it's about me, the victory that comes through our faith, turning to Christ Jesus. That means Christ was thinking about you as he hung on the cross. That makes it personal. There was anguish that he suffered, partly from the physical torment of the crucifixion, which is alluded to here in the psalm, partly from the abuse and the ridicule, the mocking of those around him, also referenced in the psalm, but far greater because he bore the sins of all of his people. Became sin for us, as Second Corinthians says, and experienced the Father turning his face away, not looking upon him and the abandonment of that experience, the wrath of God for sin, taking our punishment on himself. And think about this in terms of the magnitude of it. How many Christians have there been throughout history? More than thousands, more than hundreds of thousands, more than millions. Arguably there have been and will be before the end of time, whenever that comes, billions of believers. Think of the weight, the magnitude of the sins of billions of people as Christ hung on the cross. He did that for us. He did that for you. But he also poured out his own righteousness to all of his people in exchange for their sins as they repent and put their faith in him. That perfect obedience that he took to the cross is now ours, credited to our account by grace and through faith. And because of this, what happened to the Son does not happen to us. The Father will not turn his face away from you. He will not forsake you. He will not be far from you. Because when he looks at you, he sees his Son and his perfect righteousness and obedience. What makes this sure, what makes this certain, what makes this without a doubt to be true is that this same Jesus who died rose again. (laughs) And that's what we celebrate and remember this morning. The victory that he gained, as we saw in Hebrews 2, over Satan, but also over sin and death. He's done it. He's obeyed in our place. He's died in our place. Accomplished our salvation in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. He's done it. And because he's done it, we too will rise one day to a life that never ends. So we can say with Paul, with great joy, death, where's your sting? Grave, where's your victory? 
No, the victory is in this song. The triumph of Jesus and the gospel of our faith. The victory has already been won. It will be consummated, it will be completed when Christ himself returns, coming to judge the world and usher in the new heavens and the new earth, and we look forward to that day, and we hope it comes soon. The quicker the better. But in the meantime, we look in faith to a Savior who is victorious, who lives, who rules and reigns at the right hand of the Father. We serve him, we worship him in the great congregation. And like the psalmist, we tell of his name to those around us, proclaiming his righteousness. And may you do so as you share the good news of the victory that you have in Christ Jesus with those around you. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do thank you for the work of Christ. It is a powerful thing to comprehend that he would be thinking of us as he hung on the cross. And yet that is what we we see in this psalm. It's wonderful as well to think of the victory that has been won and that victory that extends from Jerusalem and Judea to Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. We see that happening to some degree in our lifetime. We have seen it over the course of history, <coughs> excuse me, history as well. And we pray that it would continue until the full number of all the families of the earth that are written, whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, are brought in. Again, Father, may that day come and may it come quickly. All of this we lay before you and ask in the name of our Savior, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. <clears throat>